This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. We've made it over the rainbow, Josh, where there are Judy Garland movies that aren't The Wizard of Oz. So many Judy Garland movies that aren't The Wizard of Oz. With the Garland biopic Judy opening soon in theaters, we're devoting this week's show to our top five Judy Garland moments. Joining us is our resident wizard, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. We'll also spend a couple of minutes on the new Hustler starring Jennifer Lopez. You know, it occurs to me, Josh, The Wizard of Oz was a fraud. What exactly are you saying about Michael? He won't hear this part. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, we both took a crash course in Judy Garland movies over the last few weeks, and today is the final Are You Ready? I think I'm ready. Yeah? I haven't, I haven't seen everything. I don't even know if Michael Phillips has seen everything she's made. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I feel prepared. There are still blind spots, but this should be fun. I think appropriate to our styles of preparing for a show, you methodically doled out the movies, took them in over a few weeks, and I crammed, just you like did. I did in college. I procrastinated, and I had to hit everything at the last minute. To be fair, it helps when we actually commit to something four weeks ahead of time, sure. which is very rare for the show. It is so. very rare. Well, let's find out if Michael Phillips has, in fact, seen every Judy Garland movie. We welcome in the man who will be handling proctoring duties for our Garland exam. It is Michael Phillips from the Tribune. How are you? Good to see you guys. Good to see you. It's been a while. It has. I mean, it's been a long darn time since I know. you had me on. I know. We I need mean, to do was, this more regularly. It was like Obama's first term last time I was on. <laughs> it feels like it. Slight exaggeration. So... <laughs> How many? How many do you think you've seen? Have you counted them up? The Garland. First of all, I had it wrong. I thought it was Beverly Garland, the woman who played the mom on My Three Sons. So I prepared all wrong. That's next show, Michael. Next show. (laughs) That'll be a download killer. Yes. Uh, But uh, you know, I'd say uh, if you're looking at all the titles, including the uh, the the obscure ones before Wizard of Oz, you know, I've seen. 
two thirds, maybe. Okay. So yeah, enough to feel pretty smug about my knowledge base compared to you guys. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's let what's me, important. That's yeah. all that really matters. But yep. let me ask you: Is there one at the tip of your tongue that is a blind spot you're embarrassed about? Is there a Garland film you've always meant to see that you haven't? Well, I actually, I joked, I joked with uh, uh, the email to you guys earlier today about about the Pigskin Parade, or actually, it was on Twitter. Yes. Was, yes. I've never seen Pigskin Parade. <laughs> oh, so you were you were just needling? Me I was needling. Yeah. Oh, okay. I haven't seen Pigskin. Skin Parade. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if we can do a whole show on that next week, I'd appreciate it. Just okay. so I could get to it. But no, that's of the biggies. You know, there's a few others in the early 40s that I haven't seen. I've never seen presenting Lily Mars mm-hmm. and um, a lot of other things that would just sort of make you look like Nipper the dog, just staring, you know, <laughs> like what? But <laughs> presenting Lily Mars. So these, right. there's a lot of obscure titles to, to, uh, to For sure. explore someday. Well, later in the show, we'll talk a little bit about Hustlers, the new drama set in the world of upscale gentlemen's clubs. It stars J-Lo and Constance Wu. Michael and I both had a chance to see that. That movie opened to big box office numbers last weekend. We've also got poll results to our question about which acclaimed movie director needs to make a movie set in space. A lot of great feedback from that one, including one, Josh, like last week, I might just be setting aside in my back pocket to spring on you. Upon... I'm going to have to leave the studio. (laughs) We'll see. But first, Judy Garland. The Garland biopic Judy starring Renee Zellweger opens in limited release, including here in Chicago. Next weekend, the reviews so far, pretty much what you'd expect from the genre that Josh knows as his most detested movie genre, the biopic. It's a little strong, but not my favorite. Close. Zellweger herself getting a lot of praise. Now, Michael, you have made a little bit of the festival rounds here lately. Did you see Judy yet? No, no. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. There's a screening tomorrow. Does the, does the listener no good at all? No, no, it doesn't. None. But you are going to see it. Going to see it, sure. And we will have to have you back on to hear your thoughts. I I could go on singing, you know. (laughs) I'll I'll go on singing. That's what I'll do. Of course. We may or may not get to a full review of Judy here on the show, but we did want to use the movie as an opportunity to spend some time on Garland herself, who until recently was kind of a blind spot for both of us, Josh, with the exception of The Wizard of Oz, of course. It really was the Minnelli Marathon where we got to dive into her work. Is it fair to say that maybe The Wizard of Oz isn't the best introduction one could have to Judy Garland because saw it as a kid and many times since. And I don't know that it plays to her strengths now that I've seen, obviously, Over the Rainbow Hmm. is a a central piece of focus and, and made her, you know, sent her to another level of notoriety and fame. But the character, I don't think, is it's sort of a passive character, could be a little whiny and I held off on Garland for a while thinking, well, that's Judy Garland. Sure. And then I think it was producer Sam's pushing of Easter Parade a couple of years ago. That was my first non-wizard Judy Garland film, the one with Fred Astaire. And I was just completely shocked at what a great presence she mm-hmm. was in that. So very different. Uh, and then you're right. It was the Manelli Marathon that really gave me a good sense of what she could do, as well as catching up with 1954's A Star is Born when the remake came out. So yeah, then... Uh, uh, really immersing myself and then for this list in her stuff and surprise surprise Adam mm. she's really something yeah check out the big brain on Josh he's done all his homework and, and this now is he's my ready conclusion. to just shoot down <laughs> the conclusion is that he's the world needs to know about Judy Garland the Wizard of Oz can I just say though, I was I'm a crammer like Adam I was yeah. you know doing the most I could watch to catch up on the stuff I hadn't seen in years and years and stuff I I knew I liked uh, but I hadn't seen in a long long time and and just the the real pleasure of 
watching in a concentrated way, a, a, you know, a little, a little bit here and there for a couple of days of somebody who is just such an astounding triple threat, who's mm-hmm. just is at the, the top of the top of the heap. And I mean, I mean, she, it's, it's, there's a handful of other MGM stars, Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, and then, you know, one or two others, but it's, it's Kelly Astaire and Garland, and then there's everybody else. And that, and that's when you think about what that actually means, and when you talk about the work they did together, with the Garland did with Kelly and Garland did with the stereo, you're just, uh, you know, I don't have the same love for Easter Parade that you do, Josh, but, you know, the talent level is just kind of astonishing now, and it's just sort of a, I don't know, I don't, I, I can't even be cynical about how, uh, what a what a strong response I had just to kind of like, just sort of like soaking up the talent, because it's it's not somebody I grew up with. Uh, loving from age eight on, you know. I mean, I mean, I, I wasn't really a Wizard of Oz annual viewer at that age, you know. I was because if the Marx Brothers mm-hmm. were on, I was a Marx Brothers guy. So. Of course, well, they were not. not go the, back Marx, to that, the Marx Brothers were not in the Wizard of Oz, you know. I, I, although I would have actually loved to see him as Tin Man, and, but uh, the rest. Sure. <laughs> now, jokes aside, Josh, I do think it's fair to say, and this may bear out as we get into our picks, that we've discovered there are depths to Judy Garland as a performer that probably aren't fully on display in The Wizard of Oz. So why don't we go ahead and jump into those picks. We are going to devote this show to our top five Judy Garland moments. And we're going to start it off with an expert voicemail, a guest opinion here from a previous contributor to the show, Desiree Garcia. Michael, you put us in touch with Desiree. Initially, she played Madeline in Damien Chazelle's debut film, Guy and Madeline, on a park bench. She's currently an associate professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll recall that she joined us for our top five musical numbers back in 2016. That was a tie-in with our review of Damien Chazelle's La La Land. And she's got a great pick for her favorite Judy Garland moment. Hi, this is Desiree Garcia leaving a message for the Judy Garland show. Uh, if I had to choose my favorite Judy moment, which is indeed a tough task, uh, it would have to be a rather obvious choice, I'm afraid, the Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas song in Meet Me in St. Louis. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be Next year all our troubles will be out of sight. It's really an anomaly in musicals of that era in the sense that it is a uh, song that is quite dark. It's a moment that's quite dark, um, even rather kind of foreboding. Um, it's uh, Judy, of course, uh, in her character as Esther trying to console her younger sister as they prepare to leave St. Louis and move to New York. The lyrics, of course, are storied lyrics now. Um, we know that there were at least two different versions of lyrics, the first one being much darker than the first. Um, and it's, it's something that's quite rare for Hollywood musicals of the period to delve into such dark themes of, of change and family separation and um, perhaps uh, separation that is eternal. And uh, even though she's trying to comfort her little sister, Tootie, um, it's clear that uh, Esther has her own doubts about what is about to happen. 
and we hear that I think in in Judy Garland's voice. Um, you know, she's a masterful singer, and so we hear both the kind of conviction and hopefulness at times that things will work out all right, and then at other moments, I think, including at the very end of the song, as she sings those last final words, we hear that there is some doubt there on her part. Someday soon, we all will be together. It's the fates of love. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. I'd also just say that that for me, you know, that song has always been a kind of touchstone in my life, um, something that has helped me kind of mark the various twists and turns of my journeys, first away from home, 3,000 miles away to college, again, leaving a college that I came to love and consider to be home um, and embarking on a new career and then to, of course, marriage and and, um, having a kid. Uh, And every year I revisit that film and that song and it helps me to kind of chart where I've been, but also to help me to brace myself for the future. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Desiree, for that. I'm going to kick off our list here because this was also my number five, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I think my favorite Christmas music, especially if I'm thinking of the secular holiday variety, is the music that has this hint of melancholy, mm. this this hint of nostalgia to it. Bittersweet nostalgia, I think, is my favorite kind of holiday Christmas music. So think of stuff like Vince Guaraldi trios, Charlie Brown, Christmas, the music there. And yes, then Judy Garland singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas in this Vincent Minnelli film. Written for the film by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine, we should say. It's just such a showcase for the richness, the depth of her voice. I'm probably more of a fan of her ballads than when her singing gets big and brassy. I mean, that, that's mesmerizing too, but it's this sort of mellow richness um, that, that I really do appreciate. But it's not just the song, as Desiree noted. It's all about the context too, you know, trying to comfort Tootie, our beloved deranged Tootie Adam, beloved. Uh, over this, <laughs> this family's possible move. And it just matches perfectly, I think, not only for the story, but this sense of memories, nostalgia, and a little bit of melancholy that I associate so much with Christmas music. Yeah, that, that's a killer moment that that number. And uh, it what she what Desiree was was just right on about it was is I think that you could always give Garland two or three or five or twenty emotional notes to play simultaneously. And the song, the context, dramatically is is absolutely. Uh, uh, dependent on a performer who can make that work because she does, she has to, to there's two missions right on the top, you, mm-hmm. comforting the younger sister and trying to keep your own doubts and fears at bay at the same time. That's a lot to play with right there. And he had this incredible contralto voice. I mean, Garland was in her early 20s, finally playing young adult roles instead of the eternal adolescent. And also, she's just never looked like she looked in Meet Me in St. Louis. She was finally photographed as an adult um, and got to play all kinds of new colors for once. And, you know, I love the film anyway because it's Manelli and he's he's a real hero of mine. But I, I just, I, I think 
if you if you put a different performer in there, you would get an effective moment and a sad moment, but not a complicated one. And that's what that's what you get. That's why yeah. we still talk about it. I think that's going to be a recurring year. theme with this list. She has the ability, this rare ability, to bring some of that darkness to any song or any scene that she was in without letting it smother the whole scene. I do love that song from Meet Me in St. Louis. Michael, what's your number five? Garland number five moment? is in the opposite mood, and nobody knows this. Uh, there was an early, early 10-minute uh, demonstration film, a short film called Every Sunday that was designed as a showcase for two 13-year-old uh, singer-actresses, Judy Garland, uh, born Francis Gum, and Deanna Durbin from Winnipeg, Canada. They were both 13 at the time, very different. You know, Deanna Durbin, very kind of highbrow operatic style voice, and Judy Garland, much more of a kind of a, a low-down, scat-singing jazz bow, you know, a 13, kind of a, kind of a you know, all-American, Midwest sort of stock. You know, that was her whole stock and trade by the... And this short film is, is, is this patently ridiculous story where these, these two girls save the local bandstand Sunday concerts by, by, by adding some vocals to the disinterested crowd uh, and Judy's scatting away on the song called The Americana and uh, Deanna Durbin does operatic trills uh, sort of in, in, in counterpoint. I just love it for what Garland is doing at age 13 in the kind of singing that she did a lot in the 30s before The Wizard of Oz, which is this sort of, uh, you know, really kind of deft jazz scatting. And it's just remarkable to kind of hear it and see, you know, big, deep contralto voice coming out of this 13-year-old kid who hasn't really found much finesse or polish in a lot of ways at that point. But it's worth hearing just just, just to catch a little bit of what she was up to vocally then. I love it. I'm, I'm crazy about it. And this, my pick number five here, just stands in for all the jazz scatting she did huh. as a teenager on film that nobody knows. Yeah. Well, I'm going to embrace the darkness that Desiree spoke of for my number five. It's a scene from Judgment at Nuremberg. <laughs> yes, Michael. I am going. That was one of the best swing tunes she I ever know. had. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I would love to hear her take on that, actually. But I'm going to go with a dramatic turn. Fair to say a rare dramatic turn. Michael, you would have to be the expert here to point out to me whether or not it's truly as uniquely a dramatic performance in her filmography as it seems to be. Did she ever play a role or appear in a film this weighty? I mean, the one uh, weighty, because you're dealing with real-world Holocaust, you know, historical drama, that's one thing. Two years after this was the last feature she made, I Could Go On Singing, which was shot in England. Do you know anything about that? But that heavy, dramatic, very, very melodramatic role, but kind of in a similar, in a weird way, in a similar key. But that's interesting. She did them back to back. That's kind of what she she was known for. I hate to say it, train wreck Judy Garland. That was, you know, just she, yeah. for, for the emotional train wreck 
Judy Garland, huh. which we all know that was, you know, part and parcel of her whole image and her whole persona for so many years. Yeah. Well, just watch this film with my World War II and generally history obsessed son, Holden, and we both really went for it and were surprised by how nuanced it was as a courtroom drama that doesn't really shirk at all, of course, from the horrors of the Nazis and their crimes, but it also doesn't at all give the U.S. or any other nation the high ground. And I felt like it really lucidly addressed the moral and legal complexities of the case in question here, the mindset of post-war German people, Hmm. the people like the defense lawyer played, I think, wonderfully and very big, no doubt, by Maximilian Schell. But he is undoubtedly a presence. Spencer Tracy is the chief of the tribunal. Richard Widmark is the chief prosecutor. Your guy, William Shatner, appears. A very un-Captain Kirk-like William Shatner appears in the film. Hmm. And Burt Lancaster as one of the German defendants, Garland plays Irene Hoffman Volner. She's only in two scenes. She first takes the stand for the prosecution and later, more memorably, she's being cross-examined by Shell. She did get a Best Supporting Actress nom for this film in 62, follows her Best Supporting Actress nomination for A Star is Born in 55. We may hear more about that later. We said how uniquely dramatic this was for her as a role. There's not only no singing or dancing, there's no smiling. And there are a lot of tears. She plays a German woman who reluctantly testifies against four judges before the tribunal because of her involvement in an earlier case where she was part of or alleged to be part of an illegal relationship as a teenager with an older Jewish man that the court at the time painted as sexual, and she was sentenced to prison, and he was executed. And during this scene, this cross-examination scene, Shell is relentless. He's essentially relitigating the original case against her, and Garland just brings so much dignity to Hoffman. She's trying to stay calm. She's trying to answer his questions. She's trying to not let these attacks completely overwhelm her, despite the fact that she is reliving this nightmare. And he's just haranguing her. And at this point, he's haranguing her about sitting on the old man's lap and kissing him. You sit on his lap. What else did you do? There was nothing that you're trying to say. There was nothing like that. What else did you do, Mrs. Walner? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to... Why do you not let let me speak the truth? That's what we want, Mrs. Walner. The truth, the truth. This is the most forcefully we have seen her defend herself. She's actually throwing the accusation back onto him with that language. And it's the first time we see her in the seat, not sitting perfectly back in the chair. She leans forward when she makes that accusation, when she says you. But the fragility in her voice is just heartbreaking. Michael, do you remember this film? Is it, I do, is yeah, it one seen? I do. It's, you know, Stanley, uh, Stanley Kramer really... Bears down hard on the actors when when he's got a scene when scenes like that I mean, the, when the close-ups are really intense and kind of mm-hmm. unrelenting. Yes, and it, the, it's it's uh, lesser actors can come off very histrionic, and of course. You know, this is a highly dramatically charged situation, but it's Garland. Garland really keeps her wits about her in this. Yes, you know, but but her, you know, the intensity she would bring to all kinds of much lighter materials. We just talked about with Meet Me in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 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 not all that 
it's not a different performer. It's it's right next door to no, what you're she right. does in almost everything. And uh, you know, and she can work it the other way too, as we'll talk about later with uh, with uh, a certain song from uh, Starsborn. But anyway, I don't want to jump it. But sure. yeah, it's uh, I, I I need to see, I, I probably need to see the Kramer film again. I've I've I, it's been a long long time since I've seen it front to back. Hmm. Your number four, Josh. Well, let's go from perhaps her most serious film to maybe her goofiest, The Pirate. This is, <laughs> wow, this thing was bizarre, uh, supremely silly, but it absolutely knows it. That's, for me, that's its saving grace. It's another collaboration with Vincent Minnelli from 1948. And I think this gives her a chance to really show her comic side. Michael, you mentioned her as a triple threat, you know, so I tried to form my list a little bit in honor of all the qualities she did bring. So the singing and dancing, we're going to spend a lot of time on, but also as with Adam's pick, her ability to master pure drama, um, but comedy too. And, and of course, hitting multiple notes in a performance, all these notes at once. But this is really a hysterical performance that she gives. She plays Manuela, who is a woman in colonial era Caribbean who's engaged to a respected Don, but she harbors this romantic and actually it's downright erotic obsession with the infamous pirate Makoko. So my choice is the number Mac the Black and a little more plot here. Gene Kelly plays this traveling showman who becomes smitten with Manuela. And in this scene, Leading up to this number, he's trying to hypnotize her during a performance, a street performance, so that she'll fall for him. Instead, he unleashes her Makoko obsession and gets an even wilder woman than he bargained for. Who is Emanuela? Say his name. He is. Yes? Makoko. Makoko? Makoko. Makoko the pirate? Makoko the fabulous. Makoko the dazzling. No, no, Manuela, you don't mean that. Someday he'll swoop down on me like a chicken hawk and carry me away. No, no, Manuela, pure and soul. And I shall Listen. do his bidding. I shall follow him. Yay, to the ends of the world, I shall follow no, him. No, Her line readings here have perfect comic timing, but again... Speaking to those layers, there's a real sensuality and fire to them, too. And she eventually just shoves Kelly aside and bursts into what is a Cole Porter number, Mac the Black. She lets her hair fly loose. She pulls up her skirt. She's essentially singing and stomping repression into submission during this whole number. <laughs> so it's Garland at both her sexiest and most comedic all at once. So check out the pirate Mac the Black. That's a tricky, that was a tricky time in her career too because the marriage to Manelli was, you know, in the toilet. Uh, you know, she was, she was, I think, starting to lose favor at MGM for a lot of reasons, just, you know, chemically and otherwise and just chronic lateness and, you know, just a tough, tough time. But uh, that's a, that's a controversial film. It has huge proponents because it was a big flop in the day. But, um, uh, it's it's got it the comic touch is very arch you know it's it's extremely kind of like heightened high style acting and it was I think I think for the for the popcorn crowd in forty eighth you know it was like what sure you know what happened and to Judy you know <laughs> it certainly has its limitations I wouldn't put it as one of her best films overall but you're right Michael I was reading about the production and seeing how you know one of her most serious breakdowns occurred with this and it's just that juxtaposition which I think we see throughout a lot of her career where her lightest frothiest film was was potentially during her most difficult personal time mm. and other films have that too where you just 
you're amazed that she can bring that to the screen while going through something like that, and you wonder about the relationship between the two. Right. When you, a, when you talk about when you of, talk about the comic style being hysterical, yes. it's, it's right next door to a different kind exactly. of hysteria, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Your number four, Michael. My number four is a film she did with Gene Kelly, and I love the pairing of these two. They're very similar, very similar comic and musical performers in the in the internal energy they have and and they just they, they needed to kind of come together at this point in their respective careers I think for everybody to realize that you know it's just sometimes you get that kind of magical pairing even the film is pretty good it's a World War one romance with a lot of songs and Busby Berkeley directed it and you know some of the materials pretty good some of it's not great at all the two of them Kelly and Garland together especially on the very relaxed, easygoing duet on the title number uh, for me and my gal uh, is just the, the. It's just magic, and people don't know the film, and they probably haven't seen this first pairing of two great, great, the greatest, really, you know, two of the greatest musical stars ever. Uh, I don't know. I just fell in love all over again with both of them, you know. And mm-hmm. it's uh, you know, it's it's you're falling in love with the kind of talent, and exact. They have exactly the same kind of look in their eyes, the same kind of sparkle, and they knew how to work the camera beautifully by then. You know, Kelly was fairly new, but Garland had done, you know, 15, 20 movies by then uh, at the MGM factory, just cranking them out two, three a year. And But there's something about Kelly, too. It's obvious, I think, just the, the, the sex appeal of Kelly just brought out a different side of Garland, and you got a very, very different kind of flavor to the kind of romantic pairing there than you would in, you know, certainly the, that you have with Mickey Rooney and all those films together. Although there's kind of wonderful surprises in a lot of that work too but uh, I, if, if you don't know that work check it out for me and my gal I think I like this one even better than you did, Michael, when I had a chance to watch it. And that moment, the so song... Where is it on your list, man? Uh, it, it may come up a little bit it later. May. The moment you suggested was on my honorable mentions, okay, however. Okay. And there's a detail in there. I love when she says, he begins the song, right? And he's kind of fumbling a little bit. And she, she says, you better let me do it. And you get a sense of her perfectionism <laughs> yeah, as a yeah, character, but yeah. also as a performer. But it's countered once they really get into it, where... Uh, a little bit of a curl of her hair comes loose and starts bobbing like uh, with a life of its own and it just counters the precision that she has as a performer in such a wonderful way. So that's that's a great number. Yeah, and it's funny that that curl actually dogged her through many musicals. You can see you see that you happen see her in all kinds of constantly adjust her constantly. hair. Yes. You know, you, you know, whatever. Great performers are always neurotic about something. Yeah. <laughs> but I lo- I love how it's working against her. It actually works for the performance, mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you're going to definitely get some more love from me on that pairing of Kelly and Garland a bit later, but not at number four. This is a moment that happens between Garland and Fred Astaire from the aforementioned Easter Parade. This is the 1948 film directed by Charles Walters. Astaire is a Broadway star 
named Don Hughes, and he has a partner played by Ann Miller who decides to leave him and go solo. And to kind of get his revenge, he says, well, I can take really any gal, any entertainer off the street and make her into a star. Just you watch and he picks one night at this little club, this bar. He picks Judy Garland's Hannah. Of course, they do end up falling in love, though it's mostly one-sided at first. Eventually, she convinces Don that he's really in love with her. And my moment comes from the climax of the movie, really. At this point, Hannah is despondent. She is angry with Don because he danced with his former partner, Ann Miller, the night before. Not his choice, but kind of reluctantly got up with her and he was rebuked in his attempt to explain and really kind of explain his feelings for her. And I think the context to my moment is crucial here because in the previous scene, Hannah has a revelation. She's talking with Peter Lawford's John, who is actually in love with her. And they have this friendship. And he says to her, he gives her advice. Well, if I love someone, I'd find a way to let them know it. And she says, well, it's different with a man. And he says, why? And she says, I don't know. It just is. That's all. It's easier. They can. And in this moment, she has this epiphany. We cut to a stairs place. There are packages being delivered and flowers being delivered. And this is the moment where she decides that she's going to go for it. She's going to be the man in this scenario and express her feelings and not let him get away from her. Aren't you ready yet? Just like a man. Uh, Sam, will you get his jacket? I'll get it. You're going to be late, you know. Late? For the Easter parade. We had a date, remember? Oh... So it's an obvious bit of role reversal here with the genders, that line, even just like a man that she says to him. But what you can't hear in the clip is the 10 seconds she spends, which I just love, sizing him up in his Easter best. She's walking around him, (laughs) looking at him from every angle. She stops, she pauses, and she winks at him. It's that wink at Don that I love. And Astaire can't really do anything with it but just kind of say, aw, shucks, and start laughing. And then she laughs as well. It's just so utterly disarming. It's completely unexpected. As you would expect from Garland, it's done with total conviction where she's being playful, but it's not just a coy wink. It's a wink that says, I'm in control here. And it's probably, if I think about Easter Parade, probably the most sexually explicit moment in the movie. Not a sexy movie generally. No, it (laughs) really isn't. And thinking about it in the moment, it so kind of stunned me that I wondered if it was unscripted or unrehearsed, if it was a Garland improv Hmm. in that moment, perhaps, because it seems like the type of nuance that she would bring to a moment like that. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know Easter Parade as well as a lot of them. It's, it's you know, I've always considered it kind of a B plus, this good solid B plus musical. I know. I think you guys like it a little more than I. Do, well, but, Sam but, Van Hogan likes it even more than the filmmakers did. He he <laughs> adores it and gave it five stars. I'm not there with Easter Parade, but he, he puts it up with the there's actual, a lot I love. The ac- actual Easter. Yes. I think he, he that's I how think highly, he likes it more than Easter. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, you're up against the big one there. But yes. uh, but no, it, it Garland. The conviction is absolutely the word. I mean, I mean, it brings pretty in in this case, hoary h o a r y. That is yes, hoary gender gender reversal stuff. Circa 1948, verging on the 14th century, right? <laughs> yeah, but she it brings a different flavor of at least 
authenticity for the yes. moment to it. She just, you know, she just makes you buy it, you know. That's it. I'm glad you found a spot, Adam, for Easter Parade. I know the age gap thing with Astaire and Garland was yes. a little bit of a stumbling block. But Again, I, with Astaire. But it, they do have enough chemistry. They have performance chemistry. They do. That, you know, I, I think carries you through that, which is, it's noticeable. Yeah. Let's say that. Not as much as she has with Gene Kelly, but we will get to that later, at least on my list. Lots more Garland ahead, of course. You know Michael has some obscure choice to show us up with. Another one. Yeah, as sure. if the short he picked wasn't obscure <laughs> enough. That, that's all right. That, I'm going to bring it back, man. Good. They're going to be, they're gonna be going for the, the Americana. <laughs> Our top three picks plus a new film spotting poll question when we come back. Stay with us. I just want to take care of my grandma, maybe go shopping every once in a while. When I was a kid, I always wanted to work with animals. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> Welcome back to Film Spotting. I'm Josh, along with Adam, of course, and our special guest, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. You just heard Jennifer Lopez and Constance Wu in the trailer for Hustlers. It's about a group of strip club workers who come up with a scheme to rip off their Wall Street clientele when the 2008 financial collapse starts to impact their profits. This is based on a true story that first was reported in New York Magazine. Hustlers had a huge Opening weekend at the box office has also been getting very positive reviews, 88% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and an 80 on Metacritic. Following it out of the Toronto International Film Festival, you would have thought this was like the second coming of Citizen Kane. Yes. And it's been interesting to watch the later wave after it came out in theaters and you're seeing some more tempered questions being asked about the movie that – I found interesting as someone who hasn't seen it, but now kind of really wants to because we're getting a varied opinion on it. I think we might have that a little bit here as well. Yes. Adam and Michael have both seen it. Date night for you, Adam, Yeah, right? date night with Sarah. I don't know that it was the greatest choice. She was a little underwhelmed by it. And Michael, you wrote in your three-star review in the Tribune, the film's half-real, half-fantasy treatment of a fact-based story is almost really good. But good enough is good enough, thanks mostly to Jennifer Lopez dining out on her best role in years. She's terrific. And I agree with everything you wrote there, except maybe for the good enough part. I'm I'm not Not quite quite willing to go there. And, Josh, I look forward to reading some of the dialogue surrounding this film. If it has actually changed, as you suggested, has from being totally rapturous to people kind of diving into the meat of it a little bit. I'd like to hear some of that discussion because there's two lines from the end of the movie. And I'll say no spoilers here whatsoever. They really kind of hit home my struggle with the movie. One is from J-Lo's Ramona character who says America is a strip club. Some people are the ones throwing the money around, and the rest are the dancers. And before that, we get a line from Wu's Dorothy, where she's talking to the reporter on the phone. This was based on a New York Magazine article, and she says, hurt people hurt people, which is apparently a line the real Dorothy said to the reporter, which – 
I think just proves William Goldman's old point about something not feeling true in a movie just because it really happened. You can't, you can't <laughs> automatically you. include I'm, I'm it. I'm definitely with you on that second yeah. line. Yeah. It's really yeah. bad. And it rings so false in the moment, I would say, that if someone argued that the whole point of that line was for us to not take her sincerely at all, as if she was, in fact, really straining to try to justify her actions, I would probably buy that because it really is that kind of bad in the moment, frankly. And I really think that's the issue. I think the whole movie, going back to that J-Lo line, which is wonderfully delivered and undoubtedly but it's truthful. A it's a thesis It's line. a thesis statement. Yeah, and no question. the whole movie wants to justify their actions in a way that I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with. I think it too easily wants to let them off of the hook and revere their moxie and determination rather than what I think would have been a little more challenging than to force us to sit in that uncomfortable space where we absolutely recognize how reprehensible some of their actions are, but at the same time, we completely understand and empathize with the experiences that drove them to those actions. No, the movie doesn't these want to points. live in that These space. are good points, and, and this is uh, – there is – an element to it that when you read the original story for, in New York Magazine, you'd think, well, this is, you know, you could make two different kinds of movies out of this thing. One is a pretty harsh and sobering look at what what these women uh, endured and also what they perpetrated, right? Uh, the movie we get is half interested in that yes. <laughs> and half interested in everything Scorsese always goes crazy with in his crime stories, which is just the sheer exuberant kind of intoxicating uh, uh, delirium of high living low down on the criminal scale. And, and you know, it's it, it movies like everything from Goodfellas to Casino to especially The Wolf of Wall Street, a film – I hate. Uh, I'm not numbered reason. here. What, what was it? Wait, could you repeat yeah, that? Yeah, 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 hate. Let's just move on. Hate, <laughs> hate the Wolf of Wall Street. Masterpiece. And I, I, okay. <laughs> Boy, I really did walk into the wrong studio. Uh, I'm with you. I got I, your back. And honestly, I'm still sort of struggling with exactly why that film struck me so hollow. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think I think what you get in Hustlers is a movie that's a little conflicted about okay, how serious or how frivolous are we gonna are we gonna make this thing? But um, I actually think that f for the for the film we have, it's a pretty deft mixture of the two. In mm -hmm. fact, I would say that that it's it's a film that if that people may have been overpraising like crazy coming out of Toronto, and it did sort of set some of us who didn't see it at Toronto up for a for a bigger, grander, more important movie. It's not that. It's a medium weight bantamweight kind of picture. It's not really trying. Despite the lines you quote, Adam, I don't think it's really trying to make an enormous overarching statement about anything. It's just trying to say. There is another side to the Wolves of Wall Street, and it, hmm. was, it, was, it happened to be in roughly in the same neighborhood. And this was let's just flip the paradigm a sure. little bit, which and, I can and, appreciate. And, and sure, certainly, because look, we haven't I haven't exactly seen a zillion treatments of that story in those women. No, no, I agree with that. The only thing I'll say about that Wolf of Wall Street comparison, because I'm clearly outnumbered here and not going to win this battle, is that line about America being a strip club is a line Jordan Belfort would say to someone when he's conning someone. And the movie would make it clear that that's exactly what it is. And we would know that's what it is. This movie wants us to take that seriously. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of my problem with the film and its depiction of these characters. I will say that I'll echo what everyone is saying in terms of one of the key scenes of the film that's really wondrous, and it is J-Lo and her introduction scene, yeah. which is to yeah. Fiona Apple's criminal. And it is a scene where it's almost as if she's all alone on stage 
or all alone in the club, despite the fact that there's hundreds of people there, because it is all built around her performance and the movement. And it's sexy as hell, not just because it's J-Lo in a skimpy outfit, but because of her command of that space, the command of her body, the comfort she has in that space and with her body. And the director, and I apologize if I don't have the name exactly right, Lorena, I think, Scafaria Mm -hmm. is how you say it. Unfortunately, I think she undercuts it by constantly cutting back to that wide-eyed Constance Wu to try to overly accentuate just how in awe of her she really is some rather the, than it's over-directed. Yeah, some in, of the, well, I'd say the, the, that's a matter of the director not working with the editor quite right, I think, sure. like amping up the reaction shots. Well, what I really like about the, a lot of the atmosphere of that film uh, is, is just that she does – Scafaria does know what she has with simply – Parking the camera and moving it when we need to in the in the dressing room scenes, especially because that's that's when you get two, three, four, five good actresses of different you know, Cardi B and yeah. you know Wu and, and and Lopez and, every, and all kinds uh, really kind of working different characters and and we yeah. do see different character types sort of like naturally developing in this very kind of you know uh, easygoing backstage atmosphere it happens to be a ton of nudity and all kinds of things but it's not the usual male gaze it no. just isn't it no. is different no that's another point i'll agree with you on michael back to the scorsese connection we should note the next picture show they're actually pairing hustlers with casino on an upcoming pair of episodes so that should be interesting hustlers is currently playing in wide release if you see it and agree or disagree, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Adam, you've been busy. Another film? Yeah, you caught tell up with us about? a couple weeks ago, and I can't really call it a review for reasons that I'll explain here in a moment. So I'm going to call it a plug. And it's for a little movie, a micro-budget, as it's called, indie movie that was recently self-released on Amazon and iTunes, and it's called Saints Rest. Hmm. The director of it and the co-writer of it, Noga Ashkenazi, wrote that we believe anyone who has ever struggled with questions about ambition versus contentment, small towns versus big cities, family versus career, and anyone who enjoyed John Carney's Once or Begin Again would enjoy this feel-good, female-driven musical drama. And what's my connection to this film? It was shot completely in my hometown what? and the town I went to school, Grinnell, Iowa. Small Grinnell, town, Iowa. Yeah, small town of 9,000 people. And Noga was a student there, came from Israel, studied filmmaking at the Sorbonne, but she went to college at mm-hmm. Grinnell and Tyson Stock is the co-writer. Tyson, longtime listener of this show, took at least one of my classes, my Graham School classes at the oh, University fantastic. of Chicago, which fantastic. Michael, you've also taught. So a connection to the principles involved here. But I watched the movie and I'll say this objectively about it or as objectively as I can. The songs in it are really strong. It definitely has a once feel. It incorporates music into the storyline consistently. And the storyline basically is about two sisters, one who works at this coffee shop, Saints Rest, which actually exists. It's right there in downtown Grinnell. She works there. She stayed there after the death of her mother and her sister went off to go to school and start a career as an actress. And she's got a small part in a play on Broadway. So her career is taking off while the other sister is stuck running the coffee shop. So Saints Rest It didn't exist back when I was a kid. It was the varsity newsstand when I grew up in Grinnell. I would ride my bike with my friends. I'd go to the newsstand, see all the new magazines. I would look at my idols, then 
heavy metal musicians from the 1980s. It was a lot of hair. And then we would go to the back alley deli, which was attached to the varsity newsstand, get our Ren, the roast beef sandwich. It was just a great place. So I'll say about the film, in addition to the music, that the star, the sister who runs Saints Rest is Hani Furstenberg, who we saw, I think we even talked about this film, The Loneliest Planet, the Julia Loctev film from 2012. She stars in that with Gail Garcia Bernal. She is a real talent and has a wonderful voice as well. And they make my little town seem appropriately quaint, but a little exotic, too. And I said, you know, coming from (laughs) Israel and studying in Paris, Noga does bring an outsider's eye, I think, to it. So we get someone behind the camera who doesn't necessarily take its quaintness and its idiosyncrasies for granted, like I did, having spent a good chunk of my life there. Well, we got to get her over to Racine. So she yeah. can she can she can Let's kind see of immortalize looks my like right. your childhood. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. with you. Basically, from the ground up, they were like, "How can we get this movie talked about on film spotting?" All right, first we go to Grinnell. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's it. Check. <laughs> I'm sure that's what drove all of their decisions. But I really do hope more people see it. And if somehow you've listened to this show for a while and ever wondered about that little town I talk about and where I went to school, well, you can see it quite beautifully in Saints Rest and. As we mentioned, it's available now on Amazon and iTunes. Next week on the show, we are going to talk about James Gray's latest starring Brad Pitt. It's Ad Astra rave reviews. I can't wait to see this film. Josh Michael, you've seen it. Maybe a little more tempered? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, we, we've why already you asked, ruin it? We've already asked him not to say anything right, about it, so let's just move on. We are going to move on. Just going <laughs> to mutter, mutter over here in the corner. <laughs> we also are going to share a completely unrelated top five, our favorite film performances by members of the Steppenwolf Ensemble. That's, I have to say, an inspired mm. idea for a top five. Inspired. It is, because, you know, you, yeah. you have so many people who go way back, and then you have people like Carrie Coons and Tracy Letts who have just only in the last few years kind of like, whoa, look how look how effective they are on sure. screen. You know? So to name drop just a little bit, I've seen True West now perform, and of course that's a play that kind of helped put Steppenwolf on the map. I've seen it perform twice just in the past year and a half, I think. First on Broadway, Ethan Hawke, Paul Dano, and then at Steppenwolf just about a month ago and in the crowd and then saw him milling around talking with various theater performers in the lobby. Michael Shannon. Oh, Michael Shannon, Chicago's own. Shows up. Yeah, just showed up supporting the arts and the theater here in Chicago watching True West. Michael Shannon, not eligible for this top five list. Not part of the Steppenwolf Ensemble, but a lot of great actors are, including Malkovich. Malkovich, just talked about him recently in our 9 from 99 review of Being John Malkovich. Gary Sinise, Laurie Metcalf, William Peterson, Carrie Coon, Tracy Letts, the recently departed John Mahoney, who I saw in a play at Steppenwolf before he passed away, Joan Allen, Gary Cole. There's a lot of good ones to choose from, a lot of good performances. Yeah, we should also say the idea, I think... Was it yours, Sam's? It was, because I bought this book. Yeah, you've been reading Ensemble, an Oral History of Chicago Theater by a local writer, Mark Larson. So that kind of kicked off the idea. I will confess, I'm going to be pulling a Kempinar. I'm going to take the Kempinar approach for this one. I haven't started. (laughs) Unlike the Garland, where I had a few weeks to kind of prepare, I've got to really pull this together last minute. So we'll see. As you pointed out, many directions you could go, a lot of options here. Okay. If you have a pick... And you'd like to share it on the show, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That's where you could also send us an MP3 file, or you could call in a voicemail 312 264 
for. Josh, you have been out and about doing the book tour still, talking about the book, visiting different locations, giving different talks and lectures and meeting film spotting listeners as you are wont to do. Yeah, we threw How in, is it going? We threw out an impromptu meetup at Grand Rapids, Michigan because I was speaking there. A listener invited me to come speak at Compass College, a film school they have there in Grand Rapids. So Simon Vanderveen had me out and the Q&A after was really great. A handful of listeners showed up for that as well, including David Kershev. He was there with his daughter, Sarah. She's studying animation. He's a rabbi for a Grand Rapids congregation. So the two of us talked a little bit afterwards, even got into some theology. I wish that could have gone even longer, but we did have to get over to that meetup. Dion, I should say, also came to the Q&A all the way from East Lansing. So thanks to them for coming out. And then, yeah, at the meetup, a couple of listeners who were there, Adam Graff, David Blakesley. David has his own Criterion podcast. Stephen Husby, who's a documentarian. Joe and a couple of others. So really great to have the support from listeners when I do an event like this. It's always encouraging. And then, of course, to get to hang out with them afterwards. I do have two more coming up here in the near future. I've mentioned a couple times on the show, but September 26th, right around the corner, I'll be at the Apprentice Gathering. This is at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. And after that, October 3, I'll be at Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. All of this in support of Movies Are Prayers. So yeah, hope to see some of you out there. Both of those events, September 26 and October 3, are open to the public. And there is more information. If you didn't catch all those details, at filmspotting.net. Click on events right there at the top of the page. Last week on our show, we had a very long 9 from 99 review of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. We also sort of shared our top five Stanley Kubrick scenes because, as you may recall, Michael, that was the topic paired with a sacred cow discussion a few years back of 2001 2001 A Space Odyssey, where I lost my voice. So the two of you got to share your top five Kubrick scenes. That was a big, that was a really good, that was such a great (laughs) cosmic event. I I was waiting for you to hit that one out of the park. Cosmic, the appropriate word. (laughs) And I finally got to share my picks just alone. I just spoke into the void on last week's show, (laughs) sharing my top five, no one there to approve or disapprove. And we shared some listener feedback as well and some of their favorite Kubrick scenes. We did get this feedback about Eyes Wide Shut that I think is worth bringing up. Sean from NYC wrote, regarding the relatively tame cult sex scenes, Kubrick shot them unobscured, but after filming, the studio digitally inserted actors in front of the various couples so the film would get an R rating. There's a Blu-ray version out there without these digital inserts and worth seeing, not for the explicit sex, but to see the film as Kubrick intended. I did write back to Sean that as soon as I got that email... It did jog my memory that at some point after Eyes Wide Shut's release, I remember learning that fact that there was maybe an alternate version and that, yes, those barriers that are put right in front of some of these sex scenes. I I think the scene itself is kind of ridiculous, but but, uh, yeah, (laughs) it's ridiculousness on top of it. So then the mystery got a little bit deeper here with this email from David Kolb. Thanks for your recent look back at Eyes Wide Shut, a film I also think is a masterpiece. Regarding your discussion of the orgy scene, is it possible that you watched different versions? The scene was famously edited by the studio after Kubrick's death to guarantee an R rating. When I rewatched it on Netflix a couple years ago, it was definitely the unrated version, and my response to the scene was quite similar to that of Josh. So I was the person who said I thought it was relatively quaint, and it made me think, after talking to our producer Sam as well and him watching the movie with his wife Carrie and her response, I wondered, is it possible that I watched the DVD version, which I did, 
didn't look at the new Netflix version, and you and Sam had watched the Netflix version, and you didn't see as tame of a version. But that didn't pan out. It seems like we all watched the same version of Eyes Wide Shut. I think we did. I think it's just a matter of interpretation. And as I said, a matter of what sort of parties you regularly go to. Yes. I mean, the, you're just uh, you're used to this. The, now, ogling, the ogling is in the eye of the beholder, you know. <laughs> there you go. Now, Josh, you did recently mention our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Part two of their most dangerous games pairing is available now. 1985's Clue and the new horror comedy, Ready or Not. Michael, any Haven't thoughts? seen it. No? Haven't seen it. Certainly have seen Clue. Yes. Which is worth seeing just for the way Madeline Kahn says, flames. Flames. Yes. Yeah, that's, exactly. you know, that's it. <laughs> Completely yeah. agree. Next week, as Josh mentioned, a great show pairing Hustlers and Casino. If you have seen both of those films and want to hear their erudite thoughts, you can do that by getting the show wherever you get your podcasts or listening at nextpictureshow.net. New episodes post every Tuesday at midnight. We played Massacre Theater last week on the show. I know Michael's just crushed that he doesn't get to do any acting yeah. this week. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> yeah, well. I'm, Actually, the only guy with any experience here in the room. I mean, I'm acting interested now. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> Doing great. I'm buying every second of it. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie. You get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. And Josh, we're going to have to provide some hints because nobody is entering. You think she's some kind of hot stuff, don't you? She just looks... What? Clean. Really, if you know what film we massacred, please email in. Adam is very distressed. He, he takes it very hard when we don't get a lot of entries. So yes. give it a listen. And if you recognize it, send us the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday, the 23rd. And the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. Yeah. We may have a helpful clue Maybe. a little bit later in the show. Yeah, we will. It's hard because I want to go with populist choices, but I don't want them to be insanely obvious. So that balance with Massacre Theater is always a little tough. I'm just looking for great material. Of course you are. That's Tony Leung from Wong Kar Wai's 2005 film, 2046. He says, I once fell in love with someone. After a while, she wasn't there. I went to 2046. I thought she might be waiting for me there. It's time for poll results. And a couple of weeks back, we asked you, what acclaimed director's unlikely space film would you most want to see? Wong Kar Wai, one of your options. But we have talked about this over the past week or two that we maybe kind of already saw his space movie. <laughs> With 2046, or at least there's a little bit of a sci-fi feel to it. Your options were Sofia Coppola, Barry Jenkins, Wong Kar Wai, Spike Lee, Mike Lee, no relation, Lynn Ramsey, or Kelly Riker. This, of course, in honor of James Gray's Ad Astra coming out the movie we will review on next week's show. Josh, how did it come out? Well, we are not going to get Mike Lee's 
love box. I think we called it in honor of <laughs> yeah. you know, Claire Denis' high life. Only 5% of the vote went to Mike Lee. Lynn Ramsey came in after that with 10% of the vote. Kelly Reichert received 11%. Spike Lee, no relation, received 14% of the vote. Up at the top here, Sophia Coppola, my vote, only 17% of the vote. Huh. That's because Barry Jenkins got 19% and Wong Kar Wai did win. He won with it. 24% of the vote. Michael, do you have a choice here before we get Boy, to feedback? You know... I, I actually think that's – the people have spoken. Yeah. Wong Kar Wai has got – we're already halfway in space with him every time. Sure. And and it's just it's just a temporal thing, you know. It's, Maybe no, so. I, I, I'd love to – I go I, – I say throw Ryan Johnson off the Jedi project and yep. just and get Wong Kar Wai, Wong Star Wai. Wars stuff. Let's well, go. <laughs> Michael, Will Krishke agrees with you. He says, Wong Kar Wai's swooning romanticism and visual style would work so well in space. It begs the question, why hasn't he made a space flick yet? It just seems like a logical progression. After all, 2046 was almost barely sci-fi. We also heard from JJ, who says, I voted for Barry Jenkins because he's talked in the past about writing a Stevie Wonder time travel screenplay, Wait It Gets Better, starring Solange Knowles. And I desperately want to see that script become a reality. Okay. First, I've heard of that. Yeah, intrigued. This from Brady Larson. No relation, though, spelled the same way. We've had plenty of great space films in this decade that captured the staggering scope of space travel. I want something more intimate and character-focused in the vein of Danny Boyle's Sunshine. I'd like to see more films that capture what it feels like, psychologically, to float through the void in an enclosed space with a small group of people, to sail through the endless, inky blackness with the same faces for months on end. With this in mind... I submit Mike Lee as the ideal choice to tease out the intimacy and claustrophobia of space travel, not only because his work with character is peerless, not just because I believe he's the finest director of actors currently living, but because his process actually has a lot in common with a space mission. I love the thought Brady has put into this. He gathers a team of actors and they spend months exhaustively workshopping, rehearsing and improvising with each other. When I see Lee's astronauts up on screen, I know I will believe from the first moment that these people know each other like a second family and that they are also probably more than a little sick of the sight of each other. I'll believe this because on some level, it will actually be true. <laughs> That's beautiful. It is. Is Richard uh, Pout? Pout? Sure. Pout? Go with it. Pout? Okay. This is from Richard Pout, I believe that's pronounced P-O-U-T-T. The idea of an intense two-year rehearsal process on the space station involving not entirely fit Brits is more intriguing than any of the potential (laughs) movies would be. More support for last place Mike Lee here. This comes from Lisa Nelson. I agree with Richard and Brady. I mean, who doesn't want to see Timothy Spall and Leslie Manville play down on their luck astronauts? I would pay money for that. Michelle Foy writes, I voted Sofia Coppola. There you go, Josh. A little support, but I wish I I had voted Kelly Reichert. Imagine this. The film spends a good 40 minutes in the wild with characters who barely speak or only mumble barely decipherable words. You have no idea where they are, who they are, or even what era it is. It isn't until the halfway mark that you realize they're on another planet, just living their lives and trying to survive. What happened to Earth? Are they even human? Is this reality? Who knows? Take my money now, please. Wow, our... Our listeners should all be screenwriters. (laughs) Yes. I like it. Big Dan T says, my vote goes to Lynn Ramsey. I like my space movies with a distinct visual style and content that attaches itself to your brain and gnaws away at you for months afterwards. I can think of no more fitting a director than Ramsey to accomplish this. Yep. Here's Keenan Collette from London with more support for Lynn Ramsey. Lynn Ramsey was at one point about to embark on an adaptation of Moby Dick set in space. 
Yes, please. That is all. (laughs) My friend Evan Wilcox, he's out in Portland, writes, this is the best poll question ever. I want to see all of these. But I voted for Spike Lee because he seems the most likely to make a space movie that's unlike anything anybody's done before. Here's what Laura thinks. After looking at this list, I said aloud with surprise, oh, I want to see a Spike Lee space movie. One of those things you don't know you want until you see the possibility. And that is how it works. (laughs) All right. Here's Elijah Davidson, who's really trying to complicate things. How about a three-act anthology film about a team of astronauts taking on a multi-eon speed-of-light journey across the universe to explore a newly discovered world? The first act is them preparing to leave Earth, dealing with their spark of fame, the drama of leaving all they know behind, and the unknown new they are trading it all for. Sofia Coppola directs that act. Act two is on the ship as they travel. They each take turns arising from suspended animation in pairs to complete necessary maintenance tasks, prompting one-on-one interactions, and for now, unable to be requited relational complications. Barry Jenkins gets that act. Wong Kar Wai gets act three, during which the team arrives at their destination and navigates both the new terrain, the now complicated relationships amongst themselves, and the strain of being millions of miles and years away from all they know. Who has better listeners than us? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Wow. Elijah wins this film spotting poll, doesn't he? It's a three-act answer, man. It is. It was a beaut. It was a beaut. I say Elijah wins, but maybe he doesn't because we're going to add this to the poll feedback and we could just maybe, I'm hoping, I'm crossing my fingers, Josh, that we'll be able to consider this a new film spotting segment, Adam and Sam Assault Josh with Puns. Oh my, no. We got this from Josh Ashenmiller. He says, I voted for Wong Kar Wai because I want to see In the Moon for Love. Here is my list for the rest of them. Mike Lee, Another Light Year. Spike Lee, Malcolm THX, Sophia Coppola, Saturn's Bling Rings, Barry Jenkins, Moonraker, a remake, Lynn Ramsey, We Need to Talk About Heaven, Kelly Reichert, <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing, Meeks Takeoff. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I li- Yay, Josh. <laughs> I like those. You know why I like those? Puns in titles and headlines. Oh, okay. I approve. You have very Casu- specific days. Casual conversation. I feel like I'm watching a handoff from like a sportscaster to a weatherman, and it gives me the hives. Titles? Oh, so anything headlines? That remi- okay. Anything Very that reminds good, you of commercial radio or television you don't like. Is, yeah. that, is that what you're saying? Okay. That's good. Great stuff there from our listeners. We'll see if we get as inspired a round of feedback in response to this week's poll, which has us looking ahead to Joaquin Phoenix as Joker. It opens wide Friday, October 4th. We will have a review the following week. Doesn't really work with our schedules, and I'm actually going to be out of the country for a little bit. But, oh, we'll come back and reckon with Joker. I tried. I really did try to just get out of this discourse completely. But Sam was determined to force me to sit here and talk about it with you, Josh. You're not. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, all you got to do is just drown out. This is where we're going to once again tell Michael he can't talk about a movie he's seen. But we just have to drown out everything else. Go in. See what you think of it. It's very simple. Just very fo- simple. Don't worry, don't worry just, about all the rest. Just focus on what's already been written. And <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that approach as well. So we won't get Michael's thoughts because we're going to try to remain pure as we go into Joker. But in the meantime, we have our Joker-inspired poll question, which is, what is best actor alive? And I agree with Sam on this. Joaquin Phoenix's best performance. Josh, the options are... Theodore, that was in Spike Jones's Her. How about Doc Sportello from Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice? Another PTA pick here, The Master, where he played Freddie Quell. 
How about Joe in Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, Johnny Cash from Walk the Line, or this option, a little complicated, maybe a James Gray movie. Sure. So Phoenix has starred in Gray films going back to 2000's The Yards. He was also in 2007's We Own the Night, 2008's Two Lovers, and 2013's The Immigrant. This option we'll put in place of our usual other choice. That's right. So you are voting other, but you have the ability to write in which of those James Gray films is your actual choice. In early voting, a surprise to Sam, not a surprise to me, he really thought that her would be the most beloved Joaquin Phoenix performance, but it is the master's Freddie Quell who has a healthy lead. And that's the only thing healthy you can say about Freddie <laughs> Quell. Indeed. Getting my vote, I think, right now because of my love for that film, but I like all those performances. Yeah, I, I think... Freddie Quell is the way to go. It's the powerhouse one. It's in a very different register than what you get in her as Theodore and maybe leaves more of a mark on you. At least it did for me, even Mm -hmm. though he's very good in her. Now, Michael, of course, you could be the contrarian and jump in with something from Quills Quills. or Signs or Space Camp. No, wait, he was in Space Camp? Oh, yeah. How old was he? Oh, very young. I remember seeing that in the theater. I don't know how old he exactly was, but he was young. He had to be like a teenager. Yeah. When that film was yeah, made. Yeah, 80, no, when was it, 80 something? Yeah, 84-ish. Yeah, who remembers? Yeah. He was also in Ruskies, or I don't know, maybe the film we did for Massacre Theater last week. Oh, You could go with clue. that one. Oh, there's a clue. You could go with that Da-da. one, too. A very good film. Vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, high expectations next week, let us know where you're listening from. Must the roles I play be tragic, full of Oscar-winning magic. Should I drain the cup of drama to its dregs? Or do you think it is permissible to be for once quite kissable and give them a peep of my legs? I'd like to be a pinup girl. With the Judy Garland biopic, Judy, coming out here in a week or so, we get back into our top five Judy Garland moments on film spotting with that scene from the 1945 MGM review Ziegfeld Follies. It's Garland performing The Great Lady Has an Interview, which is yet another obscure choice from Michael Phillips. It's actually your number three, Judy Garland I, I know, moment. you know, and it's as much for the direction and the art direction and everything else as what Garland's up to with this. It, it's such a bizarre role for her because here she was in her early 20s, and she's playing this sort of completely now dated uh, spoof of, of Greer Garson and her penchant for biopics, Josh, I can't believe you don't know this because of your penchant for biopics. I spend so much time in them. Yeah, uh, biopics in, the, in the, these earnest sort of historical biopics from the 1940s. So this is, a, this is basically Judy Garland doing Greer Garson. So already we're talking about obsc- camera obscura. And a lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the jokes and the satire is just, it was dated the second it was filmed. But in the last two minutes of this number, you have Garland and and the boys, the the, the chorus of, of dancers that Charles Walters, the dance director and later director, you know, is doing really kind of miraculously fresh things with. But the last two minutes is just Garland cutting loose in a way that that she never really got to do much at MGM once she became an adult star. Madam Grandma Taunt did. She toiled and strived and sweat and slaved, stretching her mind and beginning to rave. But the price she paid was worth the pain, for on a cold and frosty morning... Oh, no! 
I just find a lot of the work she does in this and this long takes where you really get to see how well she could sustain a number uh, and what Minnelli was up to with the camera. And nobody filmed, nobody filmed Garland better than Minnelli, and that's saying a lot. But I don't know. I really, <laughs> I don't. It's a ten minute sequence with two and a half great minutes in it. So if that's enough for a number three, then by gum. It's my number three, <laughs> and I, I I love it just because I I I, I mean it's yeah it's 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 minor but utter, utterly uh, kind of delicious. So. Absolutely. So, Michael, you were saying Charles Walters directed those dancers. Yeah, uh, I was the dance director in the choreographer. The, okay, yeah. because he's the director of the film that my number three pick comes from, Summerstock. Actually, there you go. And I'm going with Get Happy, which also relies quite a bit on male background. Well, Lay boys, yes, absolutely. And That's a great it's, number. Absolutely wonderful. Sam, our producer, rightly led with this in his tease for this episode in the Film Spotting newsletter, Get Happy, from Summerstock. The story here, Garland plays Jane Falbury. She's struggling to keep her family farm afloat. And then when her younger sister, who's an aspiring actress, arrives with her theater troupe looking for a place to rehearse, Jane agrees to exchange space in the barn for help with the chores. Gene Kelly showing up here. He plays the troops. Leader. There are three standout numbers in this film, Garland and Kelly turning this staid barn dance into a burst of competitive joy. Kelly also gets this solo routine late at night alone in the barn, this light, seemingly improvised tap that involves a creaky floorboard and this discarded newspaper. But the highlight for me is Get Happy, where Garland sports a fedora, she's got the tuxedo jacket, the nylon tights, and these maybe half dozen male backup dancers. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy. The Lord is waiting to take your hand. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. We're going to the promised land. We're heading across the river. So aside from those backup dancers, which are really great, what's distinctive for me in this sequence is I don't know if she's, if I've seen her ever be quite as at ease as she is in this number. She's, this is a loose movie overall. I feel like there's something about getting away from the the vaudeville Broadway setting and the confines of being playing on a stage, for a stage, that sort of meta element. Getting right. on this farm just kind of loosens things up and breaks things open a little bit. And the result here is we get a Judy Garland who is simultaneously casual but also instantly iconic. Yeah, I so. love it that you guys are all up in the bandwagon's face for the same thing. But then, you know, if it's if it's Summerstock, you're okay with it. No, that's fine. Wait that's a fine. minute. Wait no, the a whole, minute. It's fine. Your whole, the whole show is built on hypocrisy. It's fine. It's fine. It, <laughs> I mean, it might as well be our tagline. I don't remember <laughs> trashing the bandwagon. Well, you know, but there's a lot. I was pretty hard on the bandwagon. A, yeah, it was really more Adam who was yep. way off the rails. <clears> well, but, uh, you know, you but, should be used to that by now. But it's Michael. the same. It, it is. I mean, look, the the let's put on a show motif yes. is about is is as dopey and unsophisticated as it, as it sounds, and it is an absolute mainstay of so much great work and just excuses for those kind of turns you're talking about. Well, here know? and here yeah. they give it just enough of a different context to to bring some freshness to and it. And she she shot that. 
last, like yes. after production yeah. had wrapped. And you can tell. And she, and I mean, you know, there's whatever, this doesn't matter much, but it, there's weight fluctuations like crazy in this yeah. film. And she dropped 20 pounds to shoot, get happy. And it's got a whole different feeling. It's got a whole different uh, uh, spin. And the music is suddenly very different. And the, the orchestration's much jazzier and kind of harder. And really, what you have is Garland halfway to her nightclub career in mm. this one number, mm-hmm. you know. And it's really kind of like a, a, a vision of Garland's future. And this is the one that I've, you know, been, you mentioned Michael kind of simmering in all of these Garland scenes over the last couple of days. This is the one for whatever reason that I just keep, I find, keep coming back in my head and I keep hearing even after I've watched a lot of her other stuff. The song Get Happy from 1930, Harold Arland wrote the music and the lyrics by Ted Kohler. I love Get Happy and this is going to maybe not make Michael Phillips happy that I'm going with another scene from Summerstock for my number three Garland moment. Howdy neighbor. It is howdy. not howdy neighbor. It's not nothing with a tractor in it? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Let's hear it. I'm eschewing tractors. So get happy, like I said, definitely in the running. And then I had two others I was strongly considering and weighing them back and forth. And at the last minute today, just this afternoon, a listener wrote in and put this one over the top for me. Evelyn So, she's in New York, New York, says my quintessential one will always be from A Star is Born. It's perfect and the definition of a show-stopping tour de force. I'm fairly sure the scene will show up on someone's list. If it doesn't, their film spotting cards definitely need to be revoked. I'm not mentioning the scene because we won't be revoking any film spotting cards. Evelyn is on the right page here. But she says, the reason I'm writing is actually to show a little love to a lesser-known Judy film, her last at MGM, Summerstock. And no, it's not Get Happy, Josh, which is rightfully iconic, but for the scene where she sings Friendly Star. There's a star for everyone Brightly shining in the sky It seems to be a part of our destiny Let me preface by first saying, the song isn't that great. To be blunt, it can even be called a little boring. It's just Judy in close-up singing her heart out as she always does. But this is the thing. It's not about the song. It's all about her delivery. I think at this point in her life, she was not in the best place, and all of this shows through in her performance. She elevates the song, making it feel bizarrely raw. You can't turn away, and just as she is literally singing about her heart's desire, the camera suddenly pans away from her and dips down to find Gene Kelly wistfully listening to her sing. When I first saw that, something in my heart just dropped. How did that just happen? It was such an unexpected and intimate turn and unusual for the typical MGM fair. It simply took my breath away. Oddly enough, I would even say that moment feels oddly modern. It's simply perfect. She closes by saying, also, maybe it's a bit of a cheat. I know Gene and Judy aren't exactly Fred and Ginger, but I have found each of their pairings unexpectedly emotional, and they are one of my favorite screen pairings. And with the backstory of Summerstock, Judy was about to be fired from MGM, and Gene did this movie as a favor to her. It just deepens the love that plays out on screen. That's great. Yeah, Evelyn's great. She is exactly right here. There are better songs performed in this movie, including... Get Happy, of course. Also, I think not too long before this, You Wonderful You, which I love. And that's the other moment I was considering that song, but also their dialogue just about show business. But it's more of a Kelly moment, I think, than a Garland one. But the reason Friendly Star stood out to me so much on first 
glance was because I had watched Easter Parade just the day before I watched Summerstock, and I really loved the song Better Luck Next Time. Mm. Remember when she's singing in the bar that she was discovered in? The bartender's the only person there, and it's another one that's mostly just a close-up, a medium close-up on Garland for pretty much the whole song, and she's just bearing her soul. And it's like Charles Walters, the director, knew we have to give Garland a number where she just finally gets to truly express herself, everything she's feeling, and what we've seen her fighting the whole movie. It's just going to be that soul-bearing number, and Friendly Star is that scene in Summerstock. Light my way Lead me to my lover Just point him out and whisper There you are There you are Evelyn's right. It's absolutely the delivery. It's elegant. It's note perfect, as you'd expect. But she's so emotionally invested in it that you realize no matter what it is, Garland's just never, we go back to the word conviction, she's just never going through the motions of a number. She definitely isn't here. And Walters does shoot it really nicely, too. The camera, at one point, we see that it's on a crane because it then just moves up just above her and it's looking down on her. So she always seems to be singing up to the sky like she is longing for something that's just out of her reach. But the clincher is that moment. It's the moment where before this email came in yesterday, I wrote to Sam and said, this is it. This is the moment from Summerstock that you have to adore. It's when the camera pans down and to the left of where she's standing to reveal that Gene Kelly is occupying the same space that she's singing in. He's sitting in a chair listening, and he's in love with her. She's clearly in love with him. She's here proclaimed it, and he heard all of it, or at least most of it. It does feel modern, like Evelyn said, and it is shocking in the moment because we're so used to these moments in musicals where a character sings their heart out to nobody. That's the whole point. They're proclaiming it to the world because they can't say it. They don't have the courage to say it to the person they're in love with. But when the object of the song hears it and is feeling it along with them, experiencing it along with them, it took my breath away too. Evelyn used three exclamation points. I might use four (laughs) for that moment. So that that moment and that song, Friendly Star, is my favorite from Summerstock. Well, and Kelly, watching some of these films with Garland, he has to be one of the all-time great watchers of co-stars. Yes. He is such a valuable audience surrogate because he's so delighted. He's so enthused about their talent that you can't help but join in the appreciation. I mean, he could he could probably sell you on a far lesser talent, but in these movies with Garland, he doesn't he doesn't have to. He's got the right. real deal there to beam at, but he's such a good watcher. They're both, you know, they're just wonderfully matched and you can see it right away in for me and my gal back in 1942. They they have they both have a hammy streak, but it's the best kind. It's the best kind of ham bone instinct where it's it's about pleasing the audience, but also also what you see is you see real actors developing almost against their will inside these these show these show folk you know these people who have to deliver them the number and really just really hit the mark and get the dance right and just and and all and and just stay on pitch and all of it that was well, frankly a lot easier for Garland than Kelly you know as a vocalist mm-hmm. but um 
Man, I mean, it's just what what you see with Kelly is kind of a he's such a physical exhibitionist because he was such a such an athlete as a dancer, and Garland is really an emotional exhibitionist. Yes. But she's also not yet. By 1950, it was you'd get intimations of what was what was going to happen to her. I think as a performer, you know, when when things got really rough after she got let go by MGM. But but she she's maybe the emotional exhibition isn't really the right phrase. It's really just more. She just has an unlimited sort of emotional supply to bring to almost any song, any yeah. mood, and and suddenly make you care care that you never thought more than you ever thought you'd care about. Uh, um, you know uh, the movie Summerstock and, sure. and the and the love story inside it. Yeah, yeah, I love your point too, Josh, about Kelly because I did spend a good chunk of the film just watching Kelly watch sure. Garland, and I think that was in contrast too to Easter Parade the day before and having to look at Fred Astaire. God bless him with that goofy look on his face the whole movie in comparison to Kelly. I just enjoy looking at Kelly so much more. It's something I think I have to get over with Astaire. And Michael, you bring up what Evelyn talked about too, kind of Garland's troubles and being dumped by MGM and that baggage that she carried with her that I didn't know about until after I saw this film and read about some of the stuff and how they had to go back and shoot Get Happy and the weight loss and whatnot. But it is ironic watching it with that knowledge when you think about the plot line of her prima donna sister gloria to heaven right where it's like okay that's probably what working with garland was like the nightmare for most right. directors right, right? so Difficult, and, yeah. and here she's playing kind of the voice of reason and being a very <laughs> rational performer that we see as the sister jane so we move on from summer stock to our number two choices for Judy Garland moments. Michael, what do you have? Oh my God, I love this so much. And it's the it's the second most obvious thing you could pick besides besides something from Wizard of Oz. But the trolley song from Maybe in St. Louis. Clang, clang, clang with the trolley. Man, I hadn't seen that front to back in a long time and I just watched it time after time the other day and just sort of just fell all the way in you know I just was I was just kind of you know I it's the kind of talent and magic that 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 for me is I'm not a very easy crier you know in the Mm -hmm. movies and I always I, I tend to only music is usually my first way in to that kind of emotional reaction and also, it's when something goes right for a character that I seem to be particularly touched. And all that is happening in the in the space of this little one-act play, which is just a song about people on a trolley, and Judy Garland is looking kind of furtively for the boy next door that she's sweet on. And is is he going to make the train? Is he going to come on the on the outing with us? It's, you know, 1904 St. Louis. It's all all very kind of this, this sort of intimation of a long, long vanished past, right? With my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high up on my head, I went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead. With his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. And what Garland does to take you from the beginning, the middle, and the end about, you know, this girl talking about 
how she feels about this guy and then he's you know then he makes the train and then everything changes for her and it's like this amazing change of process where it just becomes this really kind of like buoyant exuberant thing and then there's a great there's a great kind of like emotional turn at the end where they meet and it's a very kind of funny little ending but if you haven't seen it in a while but it's again it's brilliantly acted and I don't know I'm I'm just in the bag for this number so bad and it's it's so many people's favorite song from me mean st louis a lot of people's favorite garland number i was glad that i hadn't seen it for years you know sometimes you just need to go away you know and i'm not in general i'm not one to kind of test my favorites ability to astonish me you know I, i like to kind of take time off from things i really love and you know, like that that movie. As much as I love Mimi in St. Louis, I like to I like to kind of just park it for a year or two. And I hadn't seen that whole number in a long time. But man, oh man, that could have been my number one. It ends up being my number two. Well, I've already made my Meet Me in St. Louis pick, so I'm not going to return to that here at number two, but I am going to return to a movie you already mentioned, Michael, oh, okay. for me and my gal. Yes. I have that at number two, and it's a bit of dialogue, actually. I'm going to step away from the singing and the dancing, as I mentioned. I wanted to pay attention to which she obviously employs in her singing and dancing as well, but the dramatic chops here. And I think one of Garland's best bits of pure acting does come in this 1942 film. As you said, Michael, another Gene Kelly pairing, his screen debut. It's also available right now on the Criterion channel. So if anyone subscribes to that, very easy to give it a look. Uh, Again, they play a pair of struggling vaudeville performers who pair up in hopes of breaking through to big city theaters. And then just when things start clicking for them professionally and at least on her part, romantically, uh, World War I intervenes. My Garland moment is coming from a scene that she doesn't share with Kelly, though. Actually, here she's in her dressing room with George Murphy. He's playing another performer, and she's lamenting her sudden realization that she is in love with Kelly's Harry Palmer and that he doesn't feel the same way about her. Oh, Jimmy. It's way down deep inside of me. He's wrong, and I love him. He's right, and I love him. It's no good. Gee, what do you do when you love somebody so much they don't even know you're around? He's wrong, and I love him. He's right, and I love him. It's no good. Uh, Such great lines, and Garland is in close-up here. Um, Some soft background music, a little bit, but otherwise nothing between her and the camera. No dance routine, no attention attracting costumes, nothing else, just her face with that dialogue. And I think she turns it into one of the great mini monologues on unrequited love. So for me and my gal, probably, I said I liked it, I think, a lot more than you did, Michael, probably my favorite of the homework movies that I did (laughs) catch up on. I'd seen a handful before, but uh, of the ones this last batch I watched, I really, really fell for this one for me and my gal. So yeah, check it out. That's a great pick. And that's the the kind of scene you tend to overlook when you're looking at a musical, you know, because it's because it's basically just plot expediency and, you know, but, and, but, but she turns it into something else. That you see in that scene, how well she does with that monologue, what she could do in the clock three years later, which is a great, you know, one of my favorite Garland performances in a non-musical, another Minnelli film. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's great. That absolutely 
you can see, you can see how good she was already by 1942. And again, she's, you know, she's 20 years old there. You know? Yeah, I that's mean, amazing. Just, you know, mm-hmm. amazing instincts. Yeah. Well, if you heard Michael talk about the trolley scene and Meet Me in St. Louis and you thought, I really need to watch that or maybe rewatch it, just go back a little bit before that in that film. For my number two, it's the over the banister sequence, which Josh, you knew that I was going to pick this one. It was my favorite Minnelli moment great. from our marathon. And we appropriately called those awards the Garland. So my Garland for best moment from all the films we watched in that marathon was this very scene where she's with that love interest, the boy next door, John Truitt. And what I love about it, she has orchestrated this entire ruse basically this scene within her house to try to entice him and she is going through because there was a party that i think maybe he didn't show up to but now he's shown up after the fact and she's really shutting down the house for the night and so what we see is minelli making garland and her character esther the director of this scene where she's adjusting the lights (laughs) throughout the house and goes up the stairs and turns them out but doesn't turn them out all the way gives them just that perfect glow so that she appears perfect in them and she turns after adjusting the last one she's at the top of the stairs he's down at the bottom looking up at her and she turns to stand against the banister. And Minnelli pushes in as she comes forward. It's timed perfectly, of course, to get her face just emerging from darkness into the glow of that light, that perfect light that he can see her in. And Garland just gives this perfect head tilt, just a slight tilt of the head and a smile. And I do think these gestures are so crucial to Garland, like one of my other choices, that wink that I loved from Easter Parade, these little maybe additions or nuances, as we said before, that she adds to these scenes. It's just her in that moment, in that close-up, completely owning the frame and allowing allowing him to look up at her. Mm. And it's another scene like my choice from Easter Parade where she's really in control of the man. When you watch it, she is completely pulling the strings in this scene, bewitching him, or maybe I should say beguiling him. Beguiling while below her with tender grace he watches the picture smiling a light burns dim in the hall below which is what makes the end of the scene so funny too there's this great kind of comic bit from Garland the punctuation on it where despite how beguiling she's been and seems to have him just eating out of her hand John only reacts at the very end by shaking her hand excessively and tells her how swell of a night it was. This has been a great evening. Really, it has. I'll I'll never forget it, Esther. Do you mean that? Yes, yes, I do. (laughs) And you know something else? What? You've got a mighty strong grip for a girl. Garland's defeated face and that harumph she gives as she goes up the stairs is just gold. Like, what more could a woman do in that scene? But how he didn't just completely fall for her and give in to anything she'd ever asked for the rest of his life after seeing her at the top of those stairs, I don't. I don't know. Manelli and Garland were, both had great penchant, I think, for 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 finding the the unexpected comic, you know, button at the end of a yeah. of, of of a pretty sincere dramatic romantic scene, and that 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 that's why that movie has the flavor it does. Yeah, I love it. So that brings us to our number one Judy Garland moment, and as it turns out, 
we all are sharing a brain on this one. No! As, as Evelyn So, our listener from New York, said, this is the one that yes. if you don't have it on the list, your film spotting card will be revoked. We can't have our hosts having their film spotting cards revoked. She's dead on. It is. Michael, do you want to do the honors? Sure. Of course. It's, you know, it's my show. Yes. Uh, no, wait. I'm sorry. It's your guys' <laughs> show. Uh, uh, it's it, This has never happened. This has never happened. I don't think it has. I, when I've been on, when I've been privileged enough to be on and we've never actually all agreed on a number one I don't think but no so who, who finally came around here I mean <laughs> who, was, who was the holdout <laughs> I don't know I had I never had I never had another one it's the man that got away from A Star is Born the night is bitter the stars have lost their glitter the winds grow colder suddenly you're older and all because of the man that got away. We can talk about a lot of a lot of things about this number. It's 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 also when you look at what's on YouTube, it is such a film class unto itself. When you look at the alternate takes, the two completely separate versions of this great Harold Arlen Ira Gershwin song, that's simply setting up the the romance to come so that so that Esther singing with the band, you know, at long after closing at this dive bar, you know, can just they were practicing a number, uh, and James Mason walks in unseen and just manages to catch, you know, the moment where he realizes this is this is stardom, you know, in a voice and a performer, and everything everything about the number is so beautiful. The way it ended up, it's got this really dark, rich, sort of somewhat film noir-y kind of air to it, uh, although it's a cinemascope color picture. But when you look at the two versions on YouTube of the same song done with completely different set direction, bright light, pastel colors, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's, everything is wrong yeah. you know, except yeah. what Garland is doing. Of course. And, and, you know, a lesser studio, a lesser director, George Cukor, happened to be the the right director, a lesser director would have said, look, she's so good, we're fine. I don't care if the, the set's not quite right or the mood's a little off. Well, they kept working on it. She re-recorded it, you know, three times for film and I think sang it something like dozens of times, different different versions, and they finally got it. And uh, I don't know, the, the, the meat of the song is about a three-and-a-half-minute take uninterrupted mm-hmm. where, where you have this really – you know, I can only give it my highest adjective, Manelli level sort of visual mise-en-scene where you have the the band instruments just sort of jutting into the frame at different things. And right. they're, they're situated in a completely unrealistic way. No band, of course, you know, circles around their performer in sort of this, uh, ob, you know, this sort of blobby, not quite circle, circle. But it's, you know, on camera, it's, yeah. just, it's magic. It's and, perfectly composed. And You're right. here's the thing, the emotional... Complexity we talked about earlier with Garland. We have a song that is, you know, you know, the scriptwriter just said, you know, we need we need a dive bar number. That's all we need. We need we need her to just kind of sing some sort of like lament, romantic lament. And you know, the lyrics are very potentially uh, masochistic. You know, in that sort of way that Garland, I think, frankly, developed that kind of aura about the sort of like kind of a romantic masochism and, you know, sort of tragic romantic masochism mm-hmm. in the later, in her later kind of like train wreck years. 
but the way she sort of tosses off this number, she's smiling through most of it. Yeah. And and then she kind of hits you with this vocal powerhouse uh, every 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 stanza. That's just like it's perfect. Good riddance, goodbye. Every trick of his, you're on to. You're getting two, three, five emotional chords being played at once by this one wonderful contralto, and uh, it's not just a voice; it's uh, it's a it's a hell of an actress behind it. I don't know. I it's one of these things, Josh Adam, where you look to try to bump out your own number one. Like, is there anything better? <laughs> is there anything better? It's a lot of stuff I love, <laughs> but there's really this is kind of a titan. The only thing I can say against it is that it comes too early in the film, and the film peaks right there. Well, very, I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, a very troubled production. Um, and so I definitely agree. It's the highlight. It was my number one as soon as we decided we were going to do this list and I still had four or five movies I wanted to see <laughs> yet. And, and sure enough, it stayed there. When I wrote about A Star is Born, I, I described it as staggeringly sultry. Um, a moment of a singer meeting Garland's character coming fully into her own. And when you describe her voice here, it, it, Michael, it is that force that that she brings to bear on the material, yeah. no matter what the words are, really. It almost doesn't matter, the force that she has. I also got a, a great comment on my Larson on Film Facebook page about this moment from Glenn Goodfellow. Glenn is a he's a friend of my sister's who I know fairly well, but not well enough to get invited to the one-man cabaret show he wrote and starred in recently. I mean, come on, Glenn, where where was my invite? Uh, but here's how he described the man that got away. Judy at her maximum Judiness. It's shot all in one take. This number is so epic that it literally renamed the genre of torch songs, man that got away songs. It's also such a perfect character for her to play. It's impossible to listen to this song and not fully understand the depth of her personal loss in love. You feel it. Lastly, the brass in this recording. Kill it. Stellar all around. So yeah, Glenn's right, Michael's right, Evelyn's right, Adam's right. We're all right. It's, yeah, it's got to be the no, man that got away. It's incredible, and to put it in context for the people who maybe only know or are more familiar with the recent Star Is Born, starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Am I right, Michael? It's been a while since I've seen a Star Is Born. Remember studying it fairly closely for a film class I taught that was about movies about movies, and we compared this to the thirty-seven Star Is Born, but. This scene is the equivalent of the La Vie en Rose scene, essentially, isn't it? Where the yeah. the other performer, the older man, James Mason here, comes right. into this right. dive bar, sees her perform. Which is important. It's another watcher. It is. And I was going to say, and this goes back to a little bit the discussion about Jennifer Lopez in Hustlers and the scene where she gets her big introduction, her big performance on stage, and the constant cutting back to the person watching – James Mason, we don't see him in the scene. No. We see him walk in, and we, we see him at the there. end. We know he's yeah. there, but we never have to see him react to her to understand how incredible 
It yeah, is no, what yeah, she's no, performing. Exactly. Right? The camera just, focuses you're on You're so her. grateful for the fact that there's not a lot of conventional cutaway shots. Yes, just sort exactly. Of like, and it know. is a tour de force vocally. It it's not. It doesn't seem extremely ostentatious or showy, and yet when you really study it, you recognize just how much range she is showing in that song. And I'll end with a quote from our friend Dana Stevens. Hasn't been on the show in a long time. We need to get Dana back. She, of course, from Slate said on Twitter, this is the opposite of original, but her performance of The Man Who Got Away in A Star Is Born is one of the great musical moments on film, period. Oh, no, no question. That's no it. question. And it's and it came from a, a guy who had who never directed a great musical, George Cukor, you know. He, uh, uh, so he, something happened on that shoot. And the fact that they kicked off the two earlier versions that were perfectly acceptable in many ways and just said there's something not quite right with the way this thing looks and moves yet. Mm. Uh, she's There's nothing wrong with what she's doing. But they, they finally got the film craft – it's like it's almost like the entire film industry had to figure out a way to kind of match her level of 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 genius. Honestly, I haven't seen those, but I've seen the still images from it in some articles comparing them. And you, just looking at those still frames, you can't imagine it existing in any other no, way. No, it, you don't even know it's nighttime yeah. if, if it's supposed to be, which which would be a completely different. Mood. This is how great that number is, guys. The fact that Tommy Noonan is the piano player who's mugging his ass off during the whole. The fact that even he can't really take your eyes off, you know what she's up to uh, for sure. You know, good, good actor, but man, oh man, what a ham! <laughs> Indeed, those are our top five Judy Garland moments. It sounds like there are probably a lot of honorable mentions out there, some that have already been mentioned. Michael, do you have any that you want to make sure you oh, throw yeah, out? Yeah. yeah, in chronological order, I love Zing, Went the Strings of My Heart from uh, a film uh, which is not particularly lovable, Listen, Darling, but it's it's wonderful pre-Oz Judy Garland where you sort of see what she was up to just in sort of the late teen years, you know, and it's a really sweet, unaffected take on a on a potentially corny song. That's great. I love the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe number from the Harvey Girls, and that's a really great, especially that sort of mid-tempo, um, somewhat jazz-inflected two-minute vocal line in the middle of the uh, a pretty big production over. But that is is great. Johnny Mercer, wonderful songwriter. That's, that's got real confidence and just real swagger. And I love about 20 seconds of I Could Go On Singing, her final film. There's a scene where she's backstage and the band, this is in London, and she's she's playing a Judy Garland like performer who's known a lot of tragedy and heartbreak, and she's back backstage. Jack Klugman is the manager, sort of exhorting her, you know, kind of reassuring her, she you can do it, you can do it. And then the band kicks in, and it's a real jazzy sort of intro number, and then builds and swells, and the camera stays on her just, to, and she goes through about seventeen emotions. And it's all about sort of this animal level of confidence that she needs as a performer to go out and kill, right? And that, and it's all done very kind of naturally. And I think for a second in the middle of this corny, stilted movie, you see a completely authentic Judy Garland moment. And you think that is probably what she was and needed as a performer. She just yeah. needed to kind of get match the music she was listening to. Hmm. All right, I've got a couple honorable mentions as well. One moment I considered from Easter Parade, one number is when the Midnight Choo Choo leaves for Alabama. It's our song and dance number with Fred Astaire that really does establish their performance chemistry, even if they may not have the best romantic chemistry. Uh, they definitely have performance chemistry there. 
Um, Adam, your pick, Meet Me in St. Louis, Over the Bannister, The Dimming the Lights. Definitely love that moment. Another one from For Me and My Gal is The Climax. Where do we go from here? She's performing at this point for the troops in Europe during World War One, And again, so many layers. That's the literal question posed by the song. But she's just run into Gene Kelly's character backstage, who she's separated from, hasn't seen in a long time, and brings all of – all of that questioning while she has a star showbiz smile on her face. You see that she's – those words mean something different for her than they do for the troops. And then Babes in Arms is a very early picture I managed to squeeze in. One of the many she did with Mickey Rooney. Wasn't wild about the film. I, I need to to adjust myself to Mickey Rooney. He's I a think lot. a little he's, bit. He's 140 percent. Exactly. Garland, though, definitely the best thing about the film. And Steve Matthews sent in an email picking – from Babes in Arms, Good Morning. He says, because one, she's adorable, two, she could sing jazz scat with the best of them, (laughs) and three, without detracting from the effortless performance of the song, she totally sells us on her nervousness slash concern over how well the song will be received. I got to mention one thing too, Babes on Broadway, which is this dopey sort of unofficial sequel, (laughs) another Mickey Judy film, but there's a great moment and it's pure acting and it's the smallest moment of, of this assignment, the top five moments. I've picked whole numbers half the time because, you know, you got to you gotta do that. But uh, there's a great moment in uh, the beginning of the song, uh, How About You, great song anyway, where Mickey and Judy are in a much more confidential key than we usually see them, especially like they are in Babes and Arms, where, you know, there's just a line reading where she just says, where he's kind of realizes that he's completely in love with her already and just says, well, your eyes are already singing. You know, of course you're a singer. And she, and, and she, there's a great pause where she just says, I'll, I'll be darned. You know, and it's, it's, the, it's funny and absolutely heartbreaking at the same time. And you think, you know, she had something that nobody else in the world had, you know. And, yeah. And if she could get Mickey Rooney to calm down and play that scene sincerely, she's, <laughs> she's like a magician. <laughs> so all of mine have been mentioned already. The one I will single out is another one from Easter Parade. It's early in the film. It's when Astaire's Don is walking with Garland on the street and he says to her as all these men are passing by that she's got to have it he needs to see if she has that thing where men walking by will just pay attention to her are they going to look at her as they pass and he sends her up on ahead and (laughs) she's doing everything she can this isn't even the real punchline to the scene where the men do start to look and we realize later it's because she's making this absurd face at them before that starts though Every man who passes by, they're oblivious to her. But Garland is just giving the most awkward smile in the world to try to get their attention. Just doing whatever she can short of, you know, yell, look at me to get them to look. And she is so awkward, just so adorably awkward in that moment that I do really love that moment from (laughs) Easter Parade. Those are, as we said, our top five Judy Garland moments. We would love to hear your picks or any other thoughts about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, Michael, that is our show. Indeed. And if you want to check out more Film Spotting Top 5s, maybe our Top 5 musical numbers list we did with Desiree Garcia, you can find that in the show archives. Reviews, interviews, and Top 5s going back to 2005, they're all there. Also at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what is Joaquin Phoenix's best performance. If you want to order a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And if you want to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, filmspotting.net slash newsletter is the place to go. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm 
at Larson on film. Michael Phillips is on Twitter at Phillips Tribune. Your parting gift, Michael, is a film spotting T-shirt. I know you're really excited. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Thank you for joining us this week. Great to have you back on. What's next as far as reviews? You know, tomorrow, going to look at the— You're going to see Judy. Going to see Renee Zellweger's Judy, set in 1969, the last year of Garland's life. Because of your appreciation for Garland, are you excited to see it? Yeah, I mean, the word, again, you can't, as we know, we can't trust— there's no such thing as listening to consensus opinions coming out of any festival. But, uh, you know, I think Zellweger is is a good, intriguing choice. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. We'll Mm -hmm. see. Well— People can find your work at Chicago Tribune slash movies. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Thank you again for Thanks coming. Thanks for on. having me on. Thanks, it was Michael. fun, guys. Thanks a lot. We will do it again soon. Out in wide release, Downton Abbey, Rambo, Last Blood, and Ad Astra, the new film starring Brad Pitt from director James. Which should Gray. we review, Adam? Yeah. Which one? This is not a a gun to your head battle. We no. we know which one we're going to review. It's Ad Astra, and we are going to share our top five film performances by members of Chicago's Steppenwolf Ensemble that might be the longest top five title in the history it's of the show. It's worth it. I think it's worth it, too. A lot of great options. Michael, putting you on the spot here at the end of the show, does one immediately come to mind? Mm. No. Okay. I resent, I resent being <laughs> blindsided by that. I don't blame you. I don't have... No, it's... <laughs> I just hope that's not uh, me. You know on what? Next show. Think about your picks. Maybe, maybe shoot us a note. You can I find will. us on Twitter if you like. I will. I will. And harass us. And you know what? So I, I know he's not a Steppenwolf Ensemble member, but we, you know, we should probably get Michael Shannon on the show. I agree. Again, and I, I'll, I'll give him a call. I'll, I'll call him over it. there in Brooklyn. Fantastic. I'll give him a oh, shot. Wow. You got look connections? At, look at you. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. I don't know. You know, he'll probably Big have fan to, of his work. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, he's uh, and he does a lot of it. <laughs> he does. He's the hardest working guy, but yeah, no, if he's in town, I, I bet he would do it. So okay. let's 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 make it a project. We will look forward to okay. that. Sounds Thank you, Michael. Good. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.